so here we have a long-term study and they concluded in their in their 2008 presentation to the American Psychiatric Association that they conclude that being off medication leads to significantly better global outcomes for those diagnosed with schizophrenia. Robert Whitaker is a medical and a health journalist and an author, most notably of the books Mad in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic. I think of both of these books as open letters to the Guild of American Psychiatry. He asks critical questions to the entire medical establishment. The overarching question he's asking is this one. If psychiatric and medical treatment for mental disorders is so helpful, then why hasn't its expansion done anything to reverse the meteoric rise in suicides and diagnoses of mental illness in this country? And it's a fair question. We as a nation seem content in accepting a dysfunctional medical disease model, but with such knowledgeable and distinguished institutions at the helm, how could this be? We talked about this and more in the interview, so enjoy the conversation with Robert Whitaker. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. All of your friends are welcome. Once you learn the basic rules, it isn't really so complicated, is it? Good manners make good first impressions. It's a simple enough matter to give people you meet plenty of room to pass. Try to understand another person's viewpoint. That's a rather simplified suggestion of a mental problem. But you get the idea. I'm here with Robert Whitaker. Bob, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. I'd like to talk with you mostly about anatomy of an epidemic. Before we do, would you mind giving listeners just a potted bio? How did you begin writing about medicine in the first place? And what's what was your basis for writing this, in my view, groundbreaking book that you wrote in 2010? Yeah, I've been writing about medicine for a long time. I was a general interest, you know, reporter for newspapers going back to the 80s. Then when I went to the Albany Times Union, and this is so long ago, 1988, uh, I began covering, I, mean, I was named their medical reporter. So I've really been writing about medicine since 1988. And after writing for that newspaper, oh, I had different uh, types of writing I did. I, I was a fellow at, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology for science writing for a while, for one year. Then I was director of publications at Harvard Medical School. Then I did a lot of freelancing. I wrote for the Boston Globe as a freelancer. I, did, I wrote for magazines. And I also started my own publishing company covering the drug industry. We reported on the drug industry. It was called CenterWatch. And that's actually how I ended up getting into psychiatry, writing about psychiatry. After I co-founded that publishing company, we looked at the development of new drugs. It became evident while we were writing about this that the clinical trials of new drugs were as much marketing exercises as they were scientific exercises. In other words, the trials were designed to make the new drugs look good. And that was particularly true of um, psychiatry. Hmm. And while writing about that, uh, there were new drugs that came to market in psychiatry in the 1990s called atypical antipsychotics. They were heralded as breakthrough medications. And what I found in my research is that, in fact, the FDA had determined that these new drugs were no better than the old. And most remarkably, uh, a number of people had died in those trials, and yet those deaths weren't mentioned in the uh, scientific articles reporting on those trials. Anyway, I 
I then went to the Boston Globe, proposed a series on abuses of psychiatric patients in research settings, and one of the parts of the series was exactly about the failure to report on deaths in those clinical trials. And that began, that was way back in 1998, and that began my writing about psychiatry, and I co-wrote that series, and it got a lot of attention. And that led to my getting a a contract to write the book Mad in America, which looked at, you know, here we live in an advanced country, and yet our outcomes for schizophrenia patients, people diagnosed with schizophrenia, are much worse than they are in poor countries of the world, such Mm -hmm. as India and Nigeria. And that book was really meant to look at why are our outcomes so poor, given our advanced medical knowledge about so many conditions. So I wrote that book, then I wrote a couple other books. And now going to anatomy of an epidemic, I really just wanted to ask a question that I think is so important, but really wasn't being answered by psychiatry itself or the scientific establishment. And that was, what do we know about the long-term effects of psychiatric drugs? Are they really helping people get well? Do they provide a long-term benefit? And that's the central question focused on in the anatomy of an epidemic. And I think one of the reasons it's had an impact is because it was the first book, really, or effort to gather all the evidence that could be gathered on this question into one into uh, one coherent book and try to find an answer to it. What have the responses I, been to a book like that that seems, seems it's deceptively complex, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, what's complex is the, the part of putting together the puzzle pieces to, to try to come up with an answer to that question, because you're not going to get a definitive answer from randomized clinical trials about long-term effects. You just don't have RCTs that go that long. But what you can do is you can, there's a, it is a puzzle, and there's all sorts of evidence pieces related to how we're shifting long-term outcomes with, with, with medications. And eventually, you see that these different evidential pieces fit together like pieces in a puzzle to, to provide a concrete answer. And here's why I think that is... The book was controversial. Uh, it's, it's, the response to it has been changing over time. But when I wrote this book, the first the sort of entry into this question was this. The story we tell ourselves is that we've made these great advances in, in psychiatry. At least that's what we were telling us 10 years ago. We were hearing that, oh, they had discovered that um, mental disorders were due to chemical imbalances. We had these new drugs that fix those imbalances, like insulin for diabetes. Now, that's a story of great medical advance. And more and more people were getting treated. And usually in medicine, if you have, if you identify a pathology, and then you get more people treated who have that pathology, you're going to see the burden of that illness go down in society. Right. So the very first thing I did in anatomy was try to look at the number of people going on disability, government disability, due to a mental disorder, a psychiatric disorder. And in 1987, which was the year Prozac came to market, um, there were 1.25 million adults receiving government payments because of a psychiatric disorder, disability payments. And now we jump forward to when I was writing this book in, in 2010, and there was more than 4 million people receiving disability benefits. So right away, you see this conundrum. During this time when we were hearing about these great advances in psychiatry and more and more people being diagnosed and treated, rather than seeing the burden of mental illness go down in our society, it was actually soaring. And that raises the question, why would that be? What are the long-term effects of psychiatric drugs? 
And the tragedy is when you try to solve this puzzle, you find quite clearly and convincingly that on the whole, uh, these medications do increase the risk that a person will become chronically ill and functionally impaired. Now, that doesn't mean that no one is doing well on the drugs. It just means that if you can flesh out what might be considered the natural course of a disorder for a large group of people, and then you flesh out the long-term course of people medicated for that disorder, a large group, you see it's the medicated group that is more likely, as I said, to be still symptomatic or more seriously ill or, or functionally impaired 5, 10, and 15 years out. Now, when the book came out, that's a pretty controversial finding. <laughs> and, you know, there was a, a fair amount of people attacking me for it. But the first important thing was it put this question of long-term outcomes and psychiatric drug use on the map. Right? And you started seeing other people focus their attention on it. And I guess, tragically, is the only way to put this is there have now been, that book initially came out in 2010, the first edition. There's now been a number of long-term studies uh, for different disorders, schizophrenia, depression, ADHD, and they have all come up with, in essence, the same finding, which is indeed the medicated people in over the long term have lower recovery rates. Mm. They're more likely to still be um, symptomatic and unfortunately functionally impaired. And the just to bring this up to date now, what you see, and this has really shifted in the research literature, there is now a lot of talk actually about do, do antidepressants actually, are they depressogenic agents over the long term? Even with schizophrenic, there's, there's an admission now, and this wasn't true 10 years ago, that there is no evidence, no good evidence that antipsychotic use over the long term provides a benefit. Now, not many people are willing to say that, oh, it looks like antipsychotics may in fact worsen long-term outcomes, but that is being raised. That question is now being somewhat repeatedly raised in different psychiatric journals, and it's because one long-term study after another, we find higher recovery rates for the unmedicated patients. So long story short is anatomy of an epidemic raised an issue that should be of central concern to any public that's using these drugs in, in the large-scale way we do. It was a new focus on that question. And uh, I do say tragically, the evidence is just getting stronger and stronger that on the whole, these medications do increase, they, they worsen long-term outcomes. So you're asking, how is it possible if mental health problems could possibly be defined and treated solely within a biomedical and disease framework, that at the same time we're treating more people with more medical interventions more often, we're actually seeing rates of what we're, we consider mental illnesses and their chronicity increase and soar. Is that a reasonable framing? Yeah, yeah that's a reasonable way. And, and the way I like to put it is, in a public health context... Usually when you get a medical advance, let's say like a vaccine for polio or something, mm -hmm. or treatment for a bacterial infection, et cetera, you'll see the burden of illness due to that pathology go down because you can now identify it and now you have a, a specific treatment for it. That's the, the model for medical advances, really. comes out of infectious medicine, obviously. And that's what we were told was happening in psychiatry. They were identifying the pathology they had drugs that could fix that pathology. More and more people were getting treated. So we should have seen, for example, the burden of mental of depression go down in our society. Well, it hasn't. What has been a reasonable argument insofar as there as there is any or a reasonable resistance against the, what you're saying now? Uh, 
Yeah, the, in terms of the disability numbers, yeah. so just to go step back for a second. Okay. From my opinion, those rising disability numbers don't prove anything, okay? Mm. They raise a question because it's contradictory. It's a paradox to what you would expect. Right, right. right. And then you go to the research literature and you, you find all these pieces of a puzzle and then you see an explanation for why this paradigm of care would be, in fact, fueling this rise in disability. So I just want to say the disability numbers just raise the question. Now, the pushback against anatomy was really of a couple types. One was they'd say, oh, that disability data, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's, it's correlation, not causation. And, you know, you might have uh, well, problems with um, welfare being uh you know, sort of the end of welfare in the 90s. So people were turning to disability payments to replace the welfare payments. Um, yeah, but things- yeah, well, I mean, it, I'm sorry I, to interrupt. You're probably getting there. I just, I almost couldn't help the, the instinct to challenge. It's not like so far in our interview, you've said anything that uh, damns the field of psychiatry. You know, it's it's like, you're you're just saying these are, these seem to be the solutions that we want to accomplish, and they're certainly not being accomplished at a large scale, what gives? And that's a question. That's a question born of a fair analysis. It's not arguable. What could be arguable is perhaps you did hazard a guess, um, but it's a falsifiable one. So certainly people could have other ways of answering these questions, which are fair, but then then I wonder what is the resistance to wanting to investigate those explanations further. Sure. Uh, so, so what we've heard so far just seems like a typical public health question. Yeah, yeah. You might ask about anything. You might ask about mammograms. Do they provide a benefit? Or does um, hormone replacement therapy provide a long-term benefit? Just a, a very central question you would ask in medicine. Right. Well, there, there's a couple reasons then for the uh, unhappiness with that. inquiry and and the book. One is, and by the way, the book is very heavily evidence-based. I mean, there's so many studies cited, and there's a whole story about how I tried to put together the the pieces of the puzzle. But if you come to the conclusion that I come to, and now you're in the field of psychiatry, well, what's your product? Your product is drugs right now, right? You Mm -hmm. left counseling off to psychologists, social workers, and other people, and suddenly... You're saying the field is your main product on the whole is, is, is causing harm. It's causing harm to our society and, and causing harm to many individuals. Now, from a guild perspective, from, you know, a guild meaning this trade association of psychiatry as a medical discipline, that's really threatening <laughs> that the, their main product is, in fact, causing harm. So they just as a, a, a natural response they can't be sort of willing to admit that or even confront the evidence because if they do, they would have to do something dramatically different. So there's a natural reluctance to consider that possibility. And then you want to see, well, what sort of resistance do you get? Do you get resistance where they, they attack you, get mad at you, or can they show evidence that, that in fact shows that their treatments are doing uh, giving a long-term benefit. Right. And what you'll see here in 10 years is they haven't been able to show the evidence I missed or that there's evidence showing a long-term benefit. So you'll see these attacks coming at me. At least you did initially. Now, the second part of this question is, but so, so that's understandable. They're, you know, they're defensive of uh, you know, what they do. 
But the second part is in the end of this book, I asked this question, well, why don't we know about this? Mm. Why hasn't someone put together this long-term evidence? And why, when they did do long-term studies and they were negative, why didn't they publicize it to us? You're saying, tell me I'm wrong or tell me why I'm the first one that you're hearing yeah, say this. Yeah, basically, yeah. And then I went into it. And basically what the last part of the book about is, is how psychiatry, beginning in 1980, when it published the third edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, basically um, – decided to adopt what I call a disease model. In other words, that mental disorders are diseases of the brain. And why did they adopt that model? Well, it wasn't because they actually had made scientific discoveries, but rather it allowed them as a profession to put on a white coat and say, look, we're just like the infectious disease doctors. And that has a lot of prestige in society. And they did this at a time, if you go back to the 70s, there was a lot of people questioning the legitimacy or the validity of psychiatry as a medical uh, discipline. So by adopting a disease model in 1980, they were able to elevate their prestige in society. And once they did that, they had to sell this new story to the public. And that's when they begin selling this chemical imbalance story to us. And that's when they start uh, telling us about how great their new drugs are and how they fix chemical imbalances. And what happened when they begin telling that story, so the guild has an interest in telling that story. Psychiatric Association is going to elevate the prestige of the guild. But the pharmaceutical companies love that story too, right? Because it's going to enable them to expand the market for their drugs. And what you see is that the pharmaceutical companies at this point began paying academic psychiatrists to be their advisors, speakers, and consultants. This goes back to the 1980s. And with that money flowing, on academic psychiatry. And with their own guild interests, you see that they begin telling us a false narrative. In other words, when I say a false narrative, they tell us about chemical imbalances being fixed by drugs when their own research was not showing that to be true. So, for example, if you read the 1998 edition of the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook, they say about the low serotonin theory of depression Listen, this was a hypothesis, but it didn't pan out. There's no evidence that serotonin is a problem, is the causative problem of depression. That's what their own textbook said. That's consistent with the science. But what did they tell the public? Well, they told the public the exact opposite. They said, we now know that depression is due to too little serotonin. So the part, going back to, Zach, your question, one of the things that made people so resistant is I said the science was showing this about these poor long-term outcomes. And one of the real problems is we as a society organized ourselves, our belief systems, our care, even our laws in a way, around a false narrative, this narrative of progress. I want to get into the into those metrics. I just feel like you smuggled in um, a short phrase there that that people are not going to realize just how much time you spent on it um, coming to this conclusion. How are you so certain that the psychiatric community wanted to more or less play dress up or or contextualize themselves within a larger medical community? How are you certain of those intentions along the way? Well, you can find them in their writings in the 1970s uh, and then going forward in the 1980s. So if you you can go and, you know, own documents by the American Psychiatric Association, their newsletters, their president's speeches, 
some documents uh, when they were, you know, creating DSM three, where they talk about, hey, you listen, our psychiatry now is fighting for its survival. Uh, we're, we're being made fun of. Our treatments aren't seen as particularly effective. Our diagnoses aren't seen as reliable. There was, a, you know, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, presented psychiatry as, as sort of a harmful institution. Then there was research by a guy named Rosenhan, where uh, he was a psychologist who presented himself, he and his students, at psychiatric hospitals. They said they were hearing like a word like thud. They all get diagnosed as schizophrenic and None of the psychiatrists at the hospitals ever realized these were just uh, ordinary students. And by the way, they didn't act psychotic in the hospital. That's all they did. They presented themselves with saying, hey, I heard this voice. So all of this led to psychiatry. There were documents saying, like, how are we going to save ourselves? Our, our, our credibility is evaporating. And they said we're in competition for patients. We had psychologists competing with us for patients. Because at this time, psychiatry is also still involved in talk therapy. We have social workers, counselors, all sorts of people. How are we going to reinvent ourselves? And what you see there is they say, well, listen, if we adopt a disease model, that allows us to put on a white coat before society. And the white coat doctor has great prestige. Mm. So you see that in their own writings that um, this Adopting a disease model was a way for psychiatry to present itself um, in a new light to society. We've done a lot of work so far to get this show where it is, a vast improvement compared to two years ago, even last year. We are constantly making improvements to the show. We're working hard to do the researching, interviewing, and sometimes the traveling required to make this thing a quality production for our listeners, for you. We're getting there. The trick is making sure we can sustain our current level of effort. Producing episodes of the show is a passion, but it's also a second career. So we ask that you consider supporting the show. Help us continue asking the right questions to the right people about topics of your interest. You can help by donating as little as $2 and becoming a sustaining member of our show. Visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. You can also make one-time donations via PayPal and the link to this is in the show notes. Again, to become a patron, visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. We thank you in advance for your support. And now a shout out to our most recent contributors. A huge thank you to Rick Barnett and his nonprofit Carter Vermont, Sherry Chandler, Dee Dee Stout, Chris Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Anne Earl, Inigo, John Holt, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Tom Rhodes, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, Susan Matthew, and Linda Rhodes. Thank you all so much for making it possible for us to do what we do. And we hope it's been worth your time and your effort and your donations. And now back to my interview with Robert Whitaker. And so you had to figure out some way to be able to tell you know, the psychiatric community that, listen... You may or may not be operating with the best of intentions and with a understanding of of what it means to be medicine, what it means to, to have a disorder. But it's quite possible that your uh, psychiatric ancestors, so to speak, 
um, set you up in this framework that is that is just not quite right, and and now you're operating within it. I talked to a woman who I met recently, and she's from my area, Sandy Steingard, who actually introduced me to you and then toured more of your work. First, she said some of the things that you wrote caught her off guard, as you know. But then she read, you know, the first parts of your book, some of your articles, and she said, well, he was asking a question that was worth answering, and I was thinking, well, how would I answer this? I don't know. And then he was also writing things that I knew to be true about psychiatry. So I figured, well, he's asking a good question. Plus, he's tell- he's talking about things that I know to be true so far. I don't know why I would think that the rest of what he's writing would be untrue. Do you find that as long as you can get people to follow you along <laughs> just for that length of time, that, that you have them in a constructive conversation? The way Sandy, Dr. Steingard, just described that, you know, that's really interesting because I, I think that she, she's describing a process she went through that made her able to sort of sit with this material and not get defensive at some point. Yeah, yeah. And the part that she was saying, I think that she said she, she knew to be true, was this hullabaloo around uh, chemical imbalances and the great advances, and these great new drugs. And then she knows it didn't pan out. So that part, so she lived that sort of storytelling that they were telling them, and you know, they're telling themselves in the 80s and 90s. And she also lived this sort of seeing the uh, corruption of the, by the pharmaceutical industry on academic psychiatry. And so she's describing a process that allowed her finally to confront the evidence and then seeing that there was a rationale to it. But stuck, Sandy Steingart is... It's not your average psychiatrist. And, you know, it's, Sandy's a very open-minded person. Yes. And she's a very thoughtful person. She, you just described her thinking process. So that enabled her to make this journey. And I think what's interesting is as she's made this journey, which isn't an easy journey because you're sort of breaking with your tribe, right? I think she's become ever more confident in, in this sort of truth of, of where she, her beliefs are now. So there are many people, psychiatrists included, who have made this journey, so to speak. And I would say often their journey is much like what she described. And that is that psychiatry did become corrupted because of this guild interests and uh, ties to pharmaceutical companies. They understand that uh, the chemical imbalance story didn't pan out. They understand that the safety and efficacy of these drugs, of the newer drugs, was exaggerated. And that that you know adverse events were hidden, uh, you know failed trials were hidden. So if you if you've come to that part of psychiatry's history that there was this sort of you know corrupt time, then then I think you can see their minds going in one or two ways. The majority probably want to say. Okay, that's all true, but I still know these drugs work, and they're prescribers, and they're not about to rethink that element because it's just too much to do. Okay, because that's what they do. It's it, 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 it's just too hard in some ways. But then there's another group that says, okay, we have a problem here. This seems pretty convincing to me, and even if I don't want to come totally to the conclusion Whitaker's drawn. I certainly don't have evidence on improving people's lives over the long term. And you see that group trying to say, well, how can I use these medications in a more skillful, selective manner? How can I become a better doctor, better prescriber? 
How can I develop alternative modes? So that's what I think you see. You see, within psychiatry, some people end up very resistant. They feel threatened by it, and they'll still be saying negative things. But other people really, have they grappled with this, you know, changed their thinking. Is there any danger to a psychiatrist sort of understanding that the things that they've been doing that make them psychiatrists have been wrong or possibly harmful, but not wanting to go all the way with your theory? Does it continue continue them in this focusing illusion that, okay, the story still is that I need to prescribe drugs, so really maybe I'll fix this by prescribing drugs differently, rather than maybe getting to the all the way to the other side of the equation that you're drawing and saying, all right, I need to really rethink what it means to be a psychiatrist in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, that's a really great question. I, I think I think there's so many um, places people end up. I think some people start down this route of really wanting to change their practices based on this information. And then what happened is uh, they'll run into trouble with some of their colleagues who aren't making the same changes, or maybe someone that they've taken off medication, allowed to come off medication or help come off. Maybe that person will have sort of a bad turn and that will scare them off doing something different because Mm. it is scary breaking with standard belief systems and standard practices. If you're doing standard practices, let's say medicating, 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 if you have a bad outcome, you're fine in terms of like any sort of like criticism. You're sure. just doing what they're supposed to do. So I have seen people move into where they really want to change it. They have a little bit of a setback. They get grief from their colleagues. And then frankly, what they do is they retreat in their daily lives into really pretty routine um, prescribing practices, mm. but mentally they'll say, oh, I'm still open to doing things selectively. So they'll sort of retain some belief that, oh, I'm happy to taper people off. I don't really use these meds that much, which is actually a little bit out of sync with their practices, which have gone back to almost uh, what they were before. So it's, it's like a spectrum. You see some people resistant to any change. You see some people who start to make the change, have something difficulties they they really go back even though their minds are a little bit different and then you have uh people you know sort of wading into the water and making some changes and then some people making wholesale changes um i I hope i'm answering your questions zach yeah what 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 happens is the, the field is in flux now one of the reasons the field is in such flux goes to this there have been attempts in the mainstream literature to say, where is our evidence that shows, say, for example, antipsychotics are improving long-term outcomes, okay? Mm. And they couldn't find them. And these were people, in a couple instances, who were set up to say Whitaker's wrong. They cite me, et cetera. So because it was by the guys that were, or the individuals that really wanted to, uh, you know, show that I was wrong, and in fact that they can't, or at least they can't point to evidence they're improving things, that has shifted the discussion among psychiatrists as a whole, and that uh, that is, and that's where we are at today. There's sort of this uh, 
intellectual crisis in psychiatry today. Or that that, and this is what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, the beliefs of the um, 1990s that there was this great new day, great new progress. That's fallen apart. Chemical imbalance story has fallen apart. It's understood that the new drugs are no better than the old. It's understood there's really no evidence that these drugs are effective over the long term. And that's the conversation within mainstream psychiatry now. That the whole grand era of the 90s it just didn't pan out. Mm. And that's sort of leading to an existential crisis where people are um, trying on a lot of different ideas, I think, even while their practices may be rooted in you know, these, these, these sort of old standard ways of medicate, medicate, medicate. Let's talk about some of these. You already said that the first kind of thing that you looked at is that I wonder what disability numbers look like. And with respect to mental illnesses, well, they're soaring. Next, you say affective disorders run a much more chronic course today than in the pre-drug era. Will you explain that a little bit? You already have touched on it, but... Yeah, yeah. Affective disorders, meaning depression yep. or uh, manic depressive illness or anxiety, etc. Right. Those were all depression and anxiety were always understood to be episodic disorders. You know, in other words, if you looked at before the antidepressants come in, if you look at any sort of long longer term study of first episode depressed patients or even first episode manic depressive patients hospitalized for it, they would they were expected to get better. And be able to be discharged from the hospital. Maybe it might be a month. Maybe it might be two months. It might be eight months. But after about 10 months, 85, 90% of the people would no longer be in the hospital for depression. They'd be out. Uh, and actually manic depressive illness uh, they would, would so regularly recover. And then the thought was, what percentage will ever have another episode? And this this is going back before the psychopharmacological era. And you'd see like, well, maybe half would never have another episode and maybe 30%. I'm talking about depressed patients would have maybe an episode every two, three years. And it wasn't that much different, frankly, from manic depressive. That was understood to be an episodic disorder as well. But then under this new DSM, they were reconceptualized as chronic disorders because if it's a biological problem – and the biological problem is still there, low serotonin, then it makes it sense that it's a chronic illness, mm -hmm. right? And same thing was thought with manic depressive illness. Even though if you go back to the origins of manic depressive illness with, with ML Kreplin, the whole point was this was a group that could be expected to recover uh, after an, an episode. Anyway, so now you have this reconceptualization of depression, affective disorders as chronic disorders. You medicate it, and what do you see today? You see that they run a chronic course. And is that because of the conceptualization, or is that because of the drug, or is that because of both? And it may be a little bit of both. Conceptualize it as chronic, and then people start seeing themselves this way. They don't really expect to recover. And then whatever the drug is doing, uh, you know, after time, it seems to help that uh, sort of prediction come true, or that prophecy come true. Right. So plentiful literature that at least in the way that we were always looking at it, people who have these kinds of disorders tend to outgrow them. And there's a perfectly good common sense explanation for why that would be. They they find the channels of life that make it worth living and find purpose. And then they're they're well again, just to just to be potted, introduce medications and a narrative for people's pain that it's chronic. It's they were born with it. 
somehow that that did not work in our favor. It had the opposite effect. Yeah, no, and I just want to emphasize this. So if you go back to the 70s, in the literature by the leading uh, doctors in depression in the United States and elsewhere, and this is even coming from the National Institute of Mental Health, they'll say, listen, with depression, no matter what you do, it's likely going to lift. Really, the only point of antidepressants is to try to shorten the episode. That understanding of depression affective disorders, that's not mine. That's literally what the experts were saying in the 70s. And then, uh, so really the thought with antidepressants was uh, maybe we can just speed up this natural healing process. Right. But then you go back and you see doctors when they start to use antidepressants, a few of them start saying things like this. Yeah, my patients are getting better faster than they used to. But they're also now relapsing more quickly back into depression after I give them an antidepressant. So they were saying, yeah, maybe the antidepressant is helping shorten the, the initial episode. But now, um, you know, they're falling back into depression with greater frequency. And you even have doctors saying, this goes back to the 70s, are we causing a chronification of the disease, of, the, of depression? Hmm. So the point is, it was in the clinical literature then, and I just dug it out, so to speak. And in, and now going forward in the 80s, you do see this. All of a sudden, you're seeing studies of patients treated with antidepressants. They are relapsing much more than they used to. You find that at two, three years, they're much more likely to still, they're, they're depressed. And now here comes a key moment. So there's actually a meeting, I think it's 1985, where the NIMH says, well, what is the natural course? Of, what is the course of depression? And they say, well, we used to think it was episodic, but now we see it's chronic. Okay, it's a long-lasting thing. But now, rather than say maybe the drugs are causing this at this 85 meeting, they say, ah, finally, we're our epidemiological studies are getting better, and we're discovering oh, yeah. the real course of depression. But what they're really discovering, of course— is the course of medicated depression. So, yeah, did I answer your question there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so there's, a, there's this idea that, oh, finally the the literature is caught up with what we've been saying is true all along. That, yeah, so they, what, I mean, the funny thing is they now see people having a chronic course. Right, and celebrate it. Studies are showing, but rather than say, well, maybe it's due to drugs, they say, oh, finally our epidemiological studies are... Are, are are getting much better. Yeah, but it's a way that it, that that saves their their drugs, right? Yeah, they would never agree to this, so maybe it's uncharitable for me to say. But it is like I was just saying; it's it's almost like they see that there's more destruction than ever, and that's to be celebrated. That aids their story. Yeah, yeah. it actually fit with their their new model that they adopted in 1980 that these are biological disorders; these are diseases, and if you have this like permanent brain chemistry which is what they were saying, that you had this low serotonin, well, then it would be chronic, right? Right. Now, how does this map on to uh, schizophrenia? You say that it's a myth that all people with schizophrenia need to be on antipsychotic medication all of their lives. Yeah, you know, I don't know any... Uh, this, of course, is absolutely uh, a firm belief in the American society. Most psychiatrists for the longest time would say would say that to be so... Uh, I once believed that to be so uh, when I was co-writing a series for the Boston Globe. Uh, that was a context for one part of the series. But here's the thing about this. This is a complicated story. So we remember schizophrenia somehow as this discrete det deteriorating disorder. 
uh, where people, uh, you know, had psychosis and then just gradually deteriorated over time. But, but schizophrenia is a term that has been applied to a lot of different patient groups, right, over time. And if you actually look at uh, schizophrenia outcomes, say, before the psychopharmacological era, before the arrival of antipsychotics, say, from 1945 to 1955, you'd have 60% of people, 65% of people who entered the hospital with a, you know, got a diagnosis of schizophrenia being discharged within a year, year and a half. And a good percentage of those would not come back uh, to the hospital. And a good percentage, in fact, would be working. They'd be like 35% fully recovered after a few years and another like 30% working. So even in that past, you see a different version of what is the possibilities of people diagnosed with schizophrenia. But now we've had long-term outcome studies. The best one was done by Martin Harrow and Thomas Job at the University of Illinois, going back to the 70s, and they enrolled 200 psychotic patients, a lot of first episode, 64 of whom were later said to have schizophrenia, and the others were milder psychotic disorders. And it's just going to be a long-term naturalistic study. Everyone's going to get treated with drugs in the, in, in the hospital, then they're going to get discharged. And then Harrow and Job are just going to follow them up and see how they're doing it two years, uh, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And in each follow-up, they're going to see, are they taking their drugs? Um, are, they, uh, are they working? Are they symptomatic? How well are they functioning? And what they found was that uh, the recovery rate for those who got off the medication, these are people diagnosed with schizophrenia, at the end of five years was about 40% for those off medication mm. versus 5% for those on. In other words, the recovery rate was eight times higher for those off medication. And the off medication group, if they weren't in full recovery, they were also they were much more likely to be doing so-so if they were off medication. Right. So here we have a long-term study, and they concluded in their, in their 2008 presentation to the American Psychiatric Association that they conclude that being off medication leads to significantly better global uh, outcomes for those diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, none of us heard this at the time. It wasn't publicized, but this was the best long-term study that we had in modern times. It was funded by the NIMH, so why wasn't that? finding um, publicized. Anyway, there's now been uh, similar studies. There's one in Australia. There's one in Norway. There's one in Denmark. There's one from Finland. Um, and all these studies are showing higher recovery rates for the unmedicated patients. I know that's surprising. It seems stunning. It doesn't mean that um, nobody uh, – that know it that, that that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals who get so diagnosed who over the long term do do better on medications. Right. But on the whole, in the aggregate, it's clear that um, if you want to maximize positive outcomes for people who get diagnosed with a psychotic episode or schizophrenia, you want to maximize the percentage who can come off their medications. And now that's a in northern Finland, they basically began using drugs and antipsychotics that way in the early 1990s. They developed something called open dialogue therapy. And their goal was to avoid initially putting people on antipsychotics or if they needed to, to use them over a short period of time. 
And once they adopted that protocol, um, they developed the best long-term outcomes in the Western world. And after five years, 80% of their first episode psychotic patients are working or back in school. This is in northern Finland, by the way. It's not through all of them. And only 20% are taking antipsychotics right So that is a much, much better outcome than we get in the United States, where only 6% recovered. They've got 80%. We've got 6%. But here in the United States, um, uh, you know, we're medicating everybody. The belief is uh, people so diagnosed need to be on these drugs for life. Sure. And that, this is not a scientific belief. Right. And, and an open dialogue therapy, too. Uh, maybe I'll, I might have Sandy on to talk about it a little more since it's something she practices. As you've stated, it's not simply about removing the drugs from the equation, although that's a boon if you can get it. It's more about how do you couch this whole thing in terms of the normal course of a person's life rather than as somebody admitted as a, a psychiatric patient. You know, how can a person be just a human being living life trying to get trying to be well rather than the idea that they are someone who is sick who will constantly need to be, uh, you know, medicated or or otherwise supervised by a medical team? Yeah, I think that the key thing that is conceptualized here is in the disease model, madness, uh, schizophrenia, whatever you want to call it, resides mm -hmm. within the brain of the individual, right? right? They have a broken brain. In open dialogue, what you're saying is, um, you know, there's been some disruption with that person's relationship to the world, right? Friends, family, etc. We don't know the causes of that, but uh, as much as anything, the idea is that the 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 reason for these dif difficulties don't just reside in the head; they reside in the in between spaces between that person and. Uh, his, his or her surroundings, family, loved ones, uh, or difficulties in life, whether it be trauma, homelessness, that sort of thing. So it really shifts everything from being located inside the brain of the individual to looking at the person who has a, a life, a context, a past, a present, a future, uh, and seeing if if, if in some ways you can help that person realign themselves to the present, their ability to be with others, uh, to have a hope for the future, that sort of thing. So it's a very different approach, starting with a, a different conceptualization of what may be going wrong. I'm going down the list of findings now, and uh, one of them on your list is the use of illicit drugs and antidepressants is full, as fueling the bipolar boom. I'm interested in this one. Yeah, you know, this one gets you in hot water. <laughs> uh, listen, it, go, if you were to go to an emergency room today and see people coming in with a new psychotic, you know, a psychotic episode, or if you want to just look at people who got a, a bipolar diagnosis today, what you find is um, is – so many people coming into emergency rooms have been using other psychi uh, psychiatric drugs, both illegal and legal. And so many people who end up with a bipolar diagnosis also have this prior history of uh, drug use. So what are the drugs that can uh, sort of increase your risk of ending up in a psychiatric emergency room or increase your risk of having a bipolar diagnosis? One, stimulants. 
we, we know that stimulants can provoke psychosis. This is well known. It's long been known. In experimental settings, they even use stimulants to provoke um, psychosis at times. Um, antidepressants can stir psychotic episodes. Antidepressants can stir manic episodes. Uh, so that's another gateway to bipolar diagnosis or an emergency room visit. Now, the one, so those are two prescribed drugs, right? Antidepressants and stimulants. Uh, there are drugs that at least used to be illegal. Now, everyone, this is where you get into where people don't want to hear this, but it's quite clear that um, regular marijuana use, especially the power spell stuff that's around today, is a risk factor for ending up with a psychotic break or, um, you know, ending up with a bipolar diagnosis. And the, the, the um, evidence on this is, is, is quite strong. So marijuana can be a, a gateway drug. Uh, clearly, then some of the other drugs can push you into psychosis, like, you know, ketamine and, you know, some of the other uh, hallucinogenic drugs. But the biggest one really... Um, sort of uh, greasing this slide into bipolar or a psychotic episode is clearly regular use of mar you know marijuana, particularly the powerful mar marijuana that's out there. Doesn't mean it happens to everybody. It just means that there is a risk associated with that with that with use of stimulants, use of antidepressants, use of marijuana. I think people will get mad at me considering what my show's about if I don't apply a little pressure here. But okay. but I think it's just a framing problem. You're not saying necessarily, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you're saying that taking one drug or another turns somebody into someone who is now bipolar. You're saying that there is a degree of drug use, and especially for specific drugs, that tend to cause episodes that lead people into the ER. And from there, it's increasingly likely that because they had that episode, they may be diagnosed with bipolar. Is yeah, that right? exactly. That's my point. Right. What what you are seeing is people are having reactions, you know, to drugs that are meant to be mood altering and mind altering, and then when something goes wrong, they end up with like a psychotic state or uh, you know a manic state, rather than being treated for drug induced, whether it be whatever the drug might be a drug-induced problem, and then being treated for that, we, we diagnose them with, you know, schizophrenia, or we diagnose them with psychosis, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar disorder. And once you get that diagnosis, of course, now you're treated with other drugs, antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood-stabilizing agents. In other words, you're now uh, seen as bipolar. Right. You're now seen as having schizophrenia. And... Once that happens, that can start to become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where you start to lead a life of a, a mental patient, yeah. a life of a bipolar person. So, yeah, what I'm saying is that illicit, illicit and licit drugs do carry risk factors for stirring uh, psychotic episodes, manic episodes, sleeplessness, that sort of thing. And when, if you are one of the people who then experiences something like that, Psychiatry was set up rather than to treat you for a drug-induced problem, uh, seeing you as 
having bipolar, having this disorder. And there, there was even talk about, well, listen, if you have an antidepressant and go manic, um, it's not that the antidepressant caused the mania. It's that you were bipolar and the antidepressant uncovered the bipolar. Hmm. I mean, that's nonsense because if you didn't <laughs> – if you didn't take the antidepressant, you might not have ever had the manic episode that right. would have got this. So, yeah, that that's that's um, uh, maybe many of your listeners will be unhappy, but that's what I'm saying. There's a risk, a clear risk of having episodes, of having responses that then can get you labeled as bipolar, schizophrenic, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, schizoaffective and then once you get that diagnosis and are treated for it then you really do become a mental patient yeah no i don't think any listeners will be unhappy i think that was a good clarification you're saying there are some confounding variables at play first of all there's the idea that psychosis um is not just an episode that to look into it's it's some it's a metric for a long-term chronic disorder so the fact that there's drug use that could alter our consciousness to the extent that we may have some kind of an episode leading us to an ER visit, we, we want to be careful because an ER visit could turn into this, uh, you know, now you're you're part of the warp and woof of the medical establishment because you are now seen as chronically ill. I think that's a really in, remarkably important point. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think uh, if psychiatry really wanted to change its, you know, turn itself around, talk to e ER doctors, by the way. It's a rare time today when they see sort of organic psychosis arise. In other words, that there isn't this sort of uh, other factors leading to it. Listen, you, they'd start treating people for uh, drug-induced episodes. And, and they would develop protocols for that. And they, that's what they, the diagnosis would be like, uh, drug-induced episodes. You right. know what I mean? Right. And then, like, what do you need to, like, uh, uh, you know, what should the treatment be? I mean, that's a very different thing. If I if if I, if I'm running along and I'm listen, uh, yeah, I've known per people, of, you know, personally that this has happened to. Uh, I mean, friends and all, and, and, and children of friends, where the kid is fine until they, you know, they go off to college or something, or maybe in high school they start smoking all the time, doing drugs all the time, and then they have an episode. If psychiatry wanted to change its ways see the person through that lens as an ordinary person who then it, within our society began using certain drugs and it screwed them up. Well, then you got to um, try to treat them for the, for the, for the drug use, so to speak. Yeah. I think you're singing my tune now. And I think that um, if all else fails, if somebody is, if you can, if you know that a person has used drugs and led them to the hospital and led them to either an overdose or something like that, there's always that chronic addiction label you can throw on them. So, <laughs> right. a way out of using common sense. And I hate the chronic addiction label, of course, because what you really want to say is like, if, first of all, it's a, if it's an initial episode, is they're having an initial episode. Right. And, and then if they go back to using, well, you have to figure out why are they continuing to use. Right. That's it. The last point that you make, and certainly not the least, is that the medicating of children and youth for mental disorders is not helping them thrive over the long term. I imagine you probably didn't get as much pushback on this, or is it the salience of, of getting children involved? Maybe maybe more, I don't know. No, actually, I didn't get much uh, pushback on that. Um, I think most people at a gut level 
uh, understand that uh, you know the child's brain still developing, yeah, um, and that throwing medic you know drugs at the developing brain is not a great thing, and even even within psychiatry. Uh, you'll see a lot of caution. I mean, even going back 20 years saying, hey, we really don't know how this might affect the kid over the long term. And that's even the biological guys are saying this. So I think there was always a sense that uh, within society as a whole, and even within a lot of psychiatry, that this medicating of kids got out of hand really fast, had a potential to do great harm. There wasn't good research showing yet to you or helping these kids really not even much over the short term. Mm. So I remember one time uh, after anatomy came out, I was asked to present at uh, something called, um, what's called the group for the advancement of psychiatry, which is basically uh, composed of academic psychiatrists. And when I met with the child psychiatrists, there really wasn't much pushback. <laughs> there yeah. was, you know, they there was so recognition that medicating someone on a continual basis who's a child is is really not likely to end well, and so um, yeah, and 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 I think people understood. I'm talking about the general public now. We've long thought that giving, you know, we don't want to see our kids doing stimulants right on the street. We don't want to see them doing speed. We don't want to see them doing marijuana. We don't want to see them doing drugs. Somehow, if they come through the doctor, it's going to be okay. So, yeah, I think there's been a lot more skepticism about that. And although, of course, there's no informed consent with kids. It's horrible. There's no informed yeah, consent because there's misinformation getting to the parents in the first place. And so, and then the parents are making the decision for the kid. Rather yeah. than, you know, if a kid's... You say, we don't want our kids using drugs on the street. And to an extent, I... Well, to a large extent, I agree with that. The only thing is, you know, my my daughter's nine months old. We've got a lot of, of childhood ahead of her. If she does turn out to use drugs despite my advice not to, I do want it to be within some realm of safety, and with it, but within the natural course of her experimentation with something so that she can make the decisions to correct course when needed and not because she's told, not, not under the auspices of, of her being you know, disabled, that she needs medication to return to baseline. Yeah, exactly. That's a different message. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I believe kids have some agency. And so if they're doing some experimenting, uh, I presume they're doing it with some sense of knowledge that there's risks. They don't think they're um, fixing a disease. So it, it's just really pernicious when someone with the authority of a doctor says, hey, your kid's got a brain problem and you need to take this drug. That's not coming from within any agency of the kid or really often any agency of the parents because they're being told stories. They don't know what to believe. But the medicating of kids in this country is, is just uh, outrageous. Have you seen it that there's uh, – it's ever the case that this maps on to the previous point we talked about where a child may have some mild dysregulation throughout their day so they're, they become medicated. But the more that they're medicated, the, the higher their risk for some quote unquote – psychotic episode oh yeah you know, absolutely. happens and then and then they're diagnosed with another chronic condition oh yeah absolutely i mean this is even in the there's even good data on like if you get diagnosed with adhd and then you're treated with stimulants so you take 
kids that have the same behaviors and you have one group gets diagnosed with ADHD and medicated and let's say the other gets diagnosed with ADHD and not medicated. The first group is much more likely to turn bipolar in the next two to four years, the one treated with stimulant. Just just think what stimulants do. They, they almost set you up to be bipolar. They, you know, you, you get the... Uh, the rush of speed, right in the morning, you get this hyped up sense, the stimulus, and then all of a sudden you crash afterward, as anybody who uses speed knows. Yeah, that's a good point. You're told that the certain suite of your emotions and behaviors are bad, but the ones that you exhibit when you're on stimulants is good. And so the mix between being able to regulate them on stimulants and then being out of control when you're not on stimulants is, yes, I see that there's a, a dichotomy there. Yeah, but being on stimulants even sets you up for an uh, up and down uh, thing through the day. And then you sort of can't go to sleep. Then you hit right. into this sort of uh, dysphoric state. You're setting up a, a mood swing throughout the day, basically, with, the, with these drugs. Yeah, no, we're on the same wavelength. The more that you rely. Yeah, exactly. Well, Bob, I know you have to get going. We said we keep this around an hour. It's getting close to an hour now. Listen, I really want to say thank you for donating some of your time to this. I do remember I live in Burlington, Vermont. I remember a few years back when you came to do Grand Rounds here that people were really excited to have you talk. So it's not like you're some uh, outcast in the medical community and it's not like you've you've just conjured up some abstract data. You've really done an incredible analysis and I really want listeners to pick up your book. Well, thank you, Zach. And your questions were great. and It was really nice being on your show. Well, thanks so much. Hey, just before you go, how do people get in touch with you or get in touch with your work and literature and things like that so I can send them there? Well, yeah, you know, I, uh, out of anatomy, I basically started a web magazine called madinamerica.com. And, you know, we have research news there. We have people writing personal stories. We have essayists like Sandy Steingard writing there. So you can go to madinamerica.com and you can look up on the menu bar contact. And just push that and you'll see uh, how you can contact me there. And you basically write rwhitaker at madinamerica.com. So all lowercase, and uh, I'll be sure to answer you. That's great. I'll link to this in the show notes. Again, we're talking to Robert Whitaker. Bob, thank you so much for being on today. Zach, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the show. Now, don't be a stranger. We want to hear from you. So join the conversation. You can email us at socialexchangepodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter or join the Social Exchange Discussion Group on Facebook. Links to all of these are in the show notes. See you next time.